We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, 1 through 8 this morning. And today marks the, the beginning of a series contained within our, our overarching study through the book of 1 Corinthians, which really is chapters 5 through 7. And it's, we've kind of characterized it and described it as an engagement in Christian ethics. And I think it's going to be helpful for us for two or three reasons. One is it, it shows us that, that sin was at home and happy in Corinth, just as sin is at home and happy in Greenville, Texas today. So it's giving us that as an indication that things have not changed significantly uh, in terms of sin and its prevalence. It also shows us this word of rebuke and correction that Paul is giving to the church in Corinth. In essence, he's saying, look, you're not engaging sin the right way. This is the way to do it, both sin in the body and sin outside the body. This is what that looks like. So that's helpful for us. It helps us to lean in and understand that. Now, as we come across this, we're going to invariably encounter things. You say, look, this means uh, nothing to me. This makes no sense to me. This has no application in my life. And so you're going to check out. That's going to be the temptation. But recognize that not everyone in Corinth, as we're going to look at today, not everyone in Corinth is sleeping with their stepmom, right? This is good news for them and, and for us today as well. And perhaps maybe uh, one of you here today, that is the sin issue you're dealing with. I mean, wow, well, you picked an interesting Sunday to come. Um, but it's, it's really this amazing thing as Paul begins to give us principles for how to deal with sins that we would say, this is an egregious sin we have to deal with. This isn't merely somebody saying, does this uh, pair of shorts make my backside look big? And you're like, mm, no, it's not the shorts. You know, it's, not, it's nothing like that, but it just gives us uh, an opportunity to understand what it looks like for a church to deal uh, specifically with sin. Now, in essence, for us to adequately understand this, we have to first understand the nature of the church. You see, because if you primarily describe and understand church as just kind of a social gathering, it's just something I do uh, to check off some type of uh, investment in the lives of those around me, when you don't understand the spiritual nature of what a church is, then you're free to treat it however the heck you want to. But when we begin to understand uh, the very nature of church and what it is, then it necessarily changes how we engage church. Paul writing to the church uh, in Colossae said this in Colossians 1 verse 18. Speaking of Jesus, he said, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the, begin he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, that in everything he might be first, best, greatest. And so when we begin to understand the church, we understand that Jesus rests as the head of the church. So if you know that Jesus is the head of the church and he's directing how us as the body functions, then the body submits itself to the head of the church, right? This is, this is the function of the body. And so when my head tells my leg to move, it tells my foot to flex, it's helping me take steps, it's helping me move forward. But if my foot rebels against my head, if it does something that my brain is not communicating to it, then it is violating the authority of my brain. So when the church moves in a way that is not in full submission to the head, it is violating the trust given to it by Jesus. And so we know by this that the church, in a very real sense, should line up, look like, find great similarity to who Jesus is. So what about the body? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you could really read uh, 12 all the way through verse 31. It's all talking about the body, but let's just look at a couple of verses in there. Paul writes and says, For just as, one, uh, just as the body is one and has many members, 
and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. And so in essence, he looks out, and so this has implications for the universal church. This has implications for the local church. And so we would say that we are not, as Ridgecrest, the only church of believers in this town or in the world, right? Why? And how can we say that? Well, he derives it for us. He says, we are part of one body, and we are one member of that. So that's the church universal. This is how we relate to other churches. This is how we do things like for the city. This is how we go on mission trips and engage other people. This is why we cooperate. Why? Because the church universal only has one head. The church universal only has one head. It's not a pope. It's not a speaker. It's not a group of men or a group of women. It is Christ. The church universal only has one head. So what about the church local? Well, the church local only has one head. You might have come from, uh, from a background and a faith understanding that, that sees the pastor, it sees a group of elders as being the head of that local body. No, those are people in submission to the head. Jesus Christ is the head of the universal church. He is the head of the local church. And so verse 13, he goes on, he says, For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks or slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And so he says, all of us, regardless of distinction, come underneath one head, and we create, we subsume one body. Now skip down to verse 26 in chapter 12. This is how close-knit, this is how tight this body should be. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member suffers, all suffer together. There is no individual heartbreak within the church of God. Why? Because it's a corporate identity. I cannot hurt as an individual and cut myself off from the care and fellowship of the body. Why? Because to do so is disingenuous and is contrary to the mandates, the dictates of Scripture. If one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. We share in suffering. We share in honoring. Let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1-8 through for us, then we'll walk through. Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though I am absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you already are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Man, I think our temptation is to read this and say, this is such an incredibly outlandish, ridiculous sin that I'm never going to find myself there. And so therefore, this isn't something I need to worry with. Let me just help you to understand that, that even in the days of the church in Corinth, it was outlandish for them. This is why Paul is able to say it's actually reported sexual immorality among you and the kind not tolerated among the pagans. 
So Paul says, look, you've got these pagans living in Corinth that when they hear of your church, they say, that is the most disgusting, vile thing we've ever heard. We are better than they are. We would never engage in this. But friends, isn't that our temptation to go along with any sin? Isn't that our temptation to go along with anything? We hear about a husband who loses his family because he's addicted to pornography, pornography and we say, that's not me, that's not my issue, that's not my attitude. I either don't look at it or I've got it under control. Look at a wife who's so hard-hearted and stubborn and resistant to the advances of her husband, and we say, that's not me, that's not my issue. I would never have that. And so we tend to find the sins of others more repugnant than the sins of our own hearts. Tend to find the sins of others more repugnant than the sins of our own heart. And why is that? Well, in some sense, they're easier to deal with. It's easier to deal with someone else's sin than it is my sin. It's easier to spot someone else's sin than it is to spot my own sin. Because my own sin is crouching and hiding, and it does not want to be ferreted out. It does not want to be rooted out. It doesn't want to leave my heart. It doesn't want to quit destroying the relationships around me. And the enemy is working overtime to help you to be blind to your sin and to have 20-20 vision to the sins of those around you. So everything is set up according to the enemy so that you will never deal with your own sin, so that you will only ever deal with the sins of those around you. You're a hypocrite. And this is the vast tendency of many in the church. But what I want you to see is the incredibly gracious nature of rebuke that Paul brings. It is swift, it is loving, and it is incredibly uh, all-encompassing. It affects the one who is living in the midst of sin, and we recognize that his sin is even affecting their community. Now, Paul says this guy's engaged in this sin. His sin seems to be that he's having sex with his stepmother. This is what it seems to be. And everybody knows about it. It's not a secret. Nobody says, hey, have you heard the one about Jim Bob? They're like, oh, Jim Bob and Sue Ellen? Yeah, they're totally sleeping together. They're totally sleeping together. Everyone in the community knew about this. And look at what he says here. He says, it is still ongoing. At the moment of Paul's writing this letter, this guy is still shacked up with his stepmom. Whether in marriage or just casual sex, they are still engaged in this act. And what does Paul say to them? He says, and you are arrogant. And you are arrogant. Imagine if we had a member of this church that was engaged in some heinous sin so that everyone in Greenville knew about it, right? And so that when they discussed our church, it was never a discussion of the things we do in the community. It was always the life of this individual. And we knew about it as well. We weren't blind to it. We weren't ignorant of it. But we said, you know, that's just, that's just him. That's just what he does. He sleeps with stepmoms. Like, that's just his sin. Or, you know, that's just pornography. He just looks at it. Or that's just a little bit of cheating on his wife. It's okay. She's okay with it. She's made her, her, her accord with it. They're fine. He can do whatever he wants. And people in our community began to know us by, by the sin we tolerate instead of the Savior we follow. Then rightly, Paul would say to us, he said, Richcrest, you are arrogant. Arrogance allows us to continue to operate in indifference towards sin, but the right response to the sin found in the membership of the body is mourning. Notice it's not anger. It's not going to somebody and saying, you've damaged our reputation, you scumbag, get out of here. But it's to be broken. 
Now, I think it should be broken on a couple of levels. One is the recognition that they have defamed the body of Christ. They have been, been inconsistent to follow and submit to the head. And so there's this understanding that you should mourn because your relationship with Jesus Christ is not being upheld. You are not submitting to what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ to represent his body. This is one reason they should mourn. The other reason they should mourn is because they have a brother in their midst. Notice the discipline only extends to him. We have every indication to think that this lady is in no way connected to the church. But they have a brother in their midst who is so caught up with sin and they don't love him enough, care for him enough to engage. They're really hoping he just goes away. They're really, he just hope, really just hoping he takes care of it on his own. So Paul says, don't be arrogant, but mourn. Mourn because what your church is communicating about the gospel. Mourn because this person is engaged in habitual, unrepentant sin. And then he begins to tip his hat, he says, and let him who has done this been, uh, be removed from among you. They're supposed to, to ask this guy to leave. In Matthew 18, Jesus begins to give us a picture of what this looks like for somebody to be removed from their midst. And, and many of us know it, and if you've joined this church, we've walked through this with you in our understanding of church discipline and how that works, uh, gross immorality or, or heresy. These are the reasons that we would seek to engage in church discipline. But I want you to look at Matthew chapter 18. If you'll flip over there, look at the, look at the, the, the greater narrative transpiring around this. This is one of the ways we understand the gospel context. We aren't looking at small little teachings, but we expand it to what occurs around it. So 18 opens up, and the disciples are talking about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> so what does Jesus do? He brings a child up. And he, he elevates them, so he takes somebody that had no worth in their society, and he says, this one is. And then he begins to talk about temptations of sin. He says in verse 7, woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. So he says, in essence, don't lead other people into sin. Well, then he turns, and he has this parable of lost sheep, and he says, look, say there's this shepherd, and he's out, and he's got a, a hundred sheep, and one of them goes astray. What does he do? Doesn't he leave the 99 and go in search of the one that went astray? So we begin to get a picture of the one who succumbs to temptation and who walks in temptation. And what's the call there? The call there is to go and to seek this person. Not to say, well, I'm so glad Jim Bob's gone. I'm so glad that's not our situation anymore. But no, they're going in there seeking after this person. Why? Because they are one who has gone astray. And then he moves into this discussion. He says, what do you do if your brother sins against you? He says, you go and you tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. Notice the, the impetus, the indication is always for restoration of relationship. He doesn't say, and Jesus could have, I suppose, say, go out, find your brother, and kick him as hard as you can so that he bends over and vomits. Then he'll know that you're really angry. And when he stands up, tell him why you did that. And if he doesn't repent, kick him again. Then you'll know that he should begin to head towards repentance because you've shown him that sin is painful. But what does he say? You go to him alone, so you're keeping it secret. You're saying, look, I know this is your sin. I know you're sleeping with your stepmother. I know this is your sin. I know you're enslaved to pornography. I know this is your sin. I know you're engaged in this relationship. Look, I know you're in sin. I know you're stealing. God delights. He desires that you would come up out of that. 
Jesus says, okay, look, if this doesn't work, take, take others along with you also so that every charge may be established on two or three. And, 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 and if he still refuses to listen, tell it to the church. If he refuses even to listen to the church, let him be to you a Gentile and a tax collector. And how did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? He treated them just like this wayward sheep. He went after them. He spent so much time having table fellowship with them that he was considered a drunkard and a glutton. But let's not just build it out of this. Understand that, that even in the context of how this is working, Jesus next gives his teaching of the unforgiving servant. And you get down to the end of verse 35, it says, So also my Father in heaven will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So the heart of God in discipline is restoration. In the heart of God for our involvement is forgiveness. It's not retribution, it's not punishment. If we mistake these things, if we begin to say, we, look, we kick them out and they have no accord, they can't come back, we can't engage, we can't talk to them until they get all of their life straight, set, and right then I think we're being disingenuous for not following the mandates of Scripture. And for sure, there are people that believe this. There are people that believe that if you're not living in full accord in obedience to the Word of God, then you should have nothing to do with them. This seems to be contrary to the mandate of Scripture, which sees us going out and bringing them back into restoration, back into fellowship, treating them uh, as if that would be an encounter of evangelism instead of an encounter of discipleship. And that's the call of the Christian. Let them be removed from you. Now, Paul is not there. Paul's not there in Corinth, and in essence, he's got to build to them the understanding that his presence, his, his authority is so great that even from a distance, he can command, he can direct them. And so he writes in verse 3, he says, For though I am absent in body, I'm present in the Spirit, and as if presence, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Notice that Paul's not writing and saying, Look, this is a situation you guys figure it out on your own, when I get to Corinth, I'll catch up, and you guys can tell me how it went. No, this isn't, he's not creating this, this latitude of understanding whereby they could engage in A, B, or C. He says, I've already pronounced judgment. What was his judgment? He's got to go. This is the judgment. Paul sees it as this, this cut and dry engagement whereby this brother is having sex with his stepmom and all the pagans in your society look at it and say, that's disgusting. Paul says, absolutely, it's disgusting. He's got to go. You've got no other choice in this. The brother has to leave. So then he begins to tell them how. He says, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now this sounds harsh. This sounds harsh. This isn't like Jim Bob coming up. He's like, my key don't work. And you're like, whoop, change the locks. I mean, this sounds like, you know, foot on the backside pushing out the door and Jim Bob's rolling down the hill and saying, what did I do wrong? <laughs> I miss what it sounds like when you read it. It's, yeah, give him to Satan and we're going to destroy his flesh. What's he talking about there? Notice in 1 Timothy 1.20, Paul gives the same instruction. He says, I've handed over Hymenaeus and Alexander to the enemy so that they might learn not to blaspheme. Now, what's this guy doing in his flesh? He's engaged in gross immorality. And so Paul looks at it. He says he has to learn that a Christian cannot engage in gross immorality. 
You cannot engage in premarital sex. You cannot engage in, in any other perversion of the sexual act outside of the covenant relationship between a man and a woman over the course of a lifetime, and that's called marriage. You can have all the sex you want in marriage with your spouse. I think it covers it. In, in Corinthians later on, he'll say, yes, and have lots of sex. But this guy's not doing that. So Paul says he's got to go. He's got to leave. He's got to be cast out so that he might learn not to blaspheme, so that he might have his flesh destroyed. Look at the idea of kind of flesh being destroyed, Romans 8. Flip over to Romans 8. Paul writes and says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so we recognize there's this inner turmoil between the deeds of the flesh the things I do because I want to do. I'm not submitting myself to Christ. I'm just doing the things that come naturally. And then the things of the Spirit, the things that are finding me in submission to the head, which is Jesus, finding me moving forward in obedience to him. Verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit, uh, you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In essence, he's saying, if you are a Christian, if you're a person who has submitted yourself to Jesus, you have confessed your sins and you've chosen to follow him, you have God's spirit residing in you. And God's spirit is directing you. And so when you engage in sin, you're being disingenuous to the call. When you engage in sin, any sin, you're choosing to follow the flesh instead of following the spirit. No, this is any sin. And when this pattern becomes repetitive... When this pattern, your pattern of engaging in sin, becomes the pattern of your life instead of uh, following the Spirit and allowing that to become the pattern of your life, you are engaging in sin and headed towards ruin. Because you're not walking in accordance with who God has made you. You're walking in accordance to something dead, something necrotic, something vile and wretched, and it is not who you are anymore. It's not who you are anymore. Look at the purpose statement behind verse 5. They're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, not so that he can just be torn away, but look at the purpose statement, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. There is a redemptive work at play for this person. There is a redemptive work at play for this person. Now, maybe you sit here this morning, and, and you're one of just a couple of categories, and let's say just one of them is you are in this sin. You're in this kind of pattern of unrepentant, rebellious sin. You know your heart before God is not ready, is not willing, is not in a posture of humility and repentance. This passage calls you to submit. You're not submitting to the leadership of the church. You're submitting to the movement of God by his spirit in you. If you are a Christian living in unrepentant sin, and let me beg you, let me entreat you, repent. Turn from it. Sin has this fantastic power to isolate us. We see our own sin, and, 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 and we're finally at the place where we're comfortable with it. But we, we have this sense that the people around us wouldn't, so we want to keep it secret, we want to keep it hidden. In the beginning, maybe you did find handling it, maybe you did find dealing with it, but this sin is growing in your heart, and it's created and bred darkness. You no longer desire to, to spend time with your brothers and sisters in Christ because you feel that there's this separation based upon your sin. If you're in sin, reach out. 
We are all members of one body. Find someone you trust, confess your sin to them, ask them to walk with you. Find someone you trust, ask them to walk with you. If someone comes to you and they confess their sin to you, and you look at it and you say, oh, I am so not ready to deal with this. I was looking just for a little bit of dishonesty, not what they have. Tell them, I don't think I can handle this. Walk with them and help them find somebody who can. If you are in sin, we want to help you. You're not made to walk in sin. You're made to walk in fellowship with the Spirit. So let us help return you to that path. Let us treat you like one of the 99, uh, the one who went astray and return you to the 99. And let's say you know of sin. You're in a relationship and you, you know that there's sin taking place because it's either sin against you or you have intimate details with it. You have a responsibility to call out that sin. I'm not asking you to stand right here and right now and to point fingers and say this person is sinning, but you have a responsibility to God and to that person to tell them they need to quit sinning. That their sin is a gross misappropriation of the image of God in their life. They are being disingenuous. They're being false and fallacious. And every other word you want to throw out there to say they are not engaging in right living. They're walking in the flesh. And you have an obligation to say something to them. And let me just spoil it for you. It's probably not going to go well. I've had a handful of times and opportunities where I have been the person who has had to go to them and say, you are sinning and you have to stop. And I've got a handful of relationships that I no longer have. Because when the sinner heard it, they chose to follow their sin instead of following Jesus. They didn't deny their sin. They didn't say you're wrong. But they chose to follow their sin instead of following Jesus. It doesn't always go well. That's not on you. That's not on you. Let's say you don't know the sin, but you're, you're, you think there probably is some. It's not your job to ferret it out. It's not your job to ferret it out. You see a family, they, they always arrive in, in one car, and now they started arriving in two cars, and you begin to think, I bet they've got some type of marital issue going on. I'm going to ask some people if they have a marital issue going on. Come to find out they only have one car, now they have two, and they're driving the American way to church. <laughs> it's not your job to ferret it out. No one in this church, not the elders, not the deacons, not the church secretaries, have the obligation and job of ferreting out sin. You know whose job that is? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is implanted in us concerning sin and righteousness, to convict us concerning sin and righteousness. If you're aware of it, you can pray for that situation, but don't seek to ferret it out. Don't stir up gossip. Look what he goes on to say. Paul moves from addressing this individual. We've got to save them. We want him to be restored. And then he starts in verse 6 to apply it to the church. And he uses this metaphor of leaven. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven. In essence, he says, look, you know how it is when you bake bread? And most of us would say, no, I don't know how it is when I bake bread. And so he says, okay, well, uh, when you're baking bread from week to week, you keep a little bit of it, this activated bread, and you set it to the side, and it begins to ferment. 
But if you let it ferment too long and, you, and then you go out and you're like, you know, it's only been three or four weeks, ah, who cares? And you add that in with some new bread you're going to make, it's going to make foul bread. It's going to make bread that, that I would make. It's going to make something disgusting. He says it leavens the whole lump. So his word is cleanse out the old leaven. When a church does not address sin, it leavens the whole lump. This is just what it does. People tend to gravitate to this kind of this lowest common denominator. What's the easiest way to follow Jesus? I see that around me and I move towards it. I see they tolerate this guy engaging in this. Man, they're not concerned with me being sinful or lying or cheating or doing anything else. This heinous sin is taking place. Surely they're okay with me being a little bit dishonest sometimes. The church has a responsibility to God and to its membership to quickly and compassionately address sin because unchecked sin in a congregation destroys the body. Remember back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul said that you are his temple and his spirit dwells in you. The body is the temple of God. His spirit dwells in our midst, in our persons. And so when we tolerate sin, it doesn't have to be sexual sin. When we tolerate unrepentant sin, it says something about how we submit ourselves to God. And that opinion begins to permeate and weave its way and find its way into the hearts of other people who are also dealing with sin. So he says we have to cleanse out the old leaven that we may be a new lump. And look what he says, as you really are unleavened. Church discipline is bringing the church into the existence that in reality it already is. Do you get that? You're not seeking to make it something wholly other. You're seeking to help it walk in the reality of what it already is. You're seeking to restore this one so that he can move and walk into the reality of being a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, walking in the Spirit instead of walking in the flesh. As a congregation, we're seeking to return it to being a true and right body because this is what we are. All churches are this way. But many of us tolerate sin because it's incredibly, a, it's just, just a bad PR job to engage in sin. It is. You don't want to go to that church. If you sin and they find out, they're going to say something to you. You, 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 don't, you don't want to go to that church. I heard they discipline a guy who was beating his wife and sleeping around. Can you imagine? But how great is it? when we begin to see discipline rightly applied to a sinner's heart, a person turns their life and they begin to walk, not in submission to the leadership of a church, that's never what we want, but they begin to walk in submission to the Holy Spirit. And they begin to walk through repentance and they begin to be restored to a body. There is always, friends, there is always an avenue of restoration and healing for one who walks away. Let's walk in, the, in light of the reality of who we are because as Paul goes on, he says, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil. Let's not be who we were. Let's live in light of a risen and resurrected Savior. Let's live in light of a Savior who has redeemed us, who has changed us, and let's walk in fellowship with him. And he characterizes this, and he says, it is the leaven of sincerity and truth. Let me just come back to this. If you're here today, 
and you are engaged in unrepentant sin, if you've been in sin and you look at it and you can't remember when it started and you can't remember how long you've been in it, let's just call that unrepentant. If you've been engaged in sin and you don't feel the sting of your conscience, the Holy Spirit pricking your heart, please talk to somebody. We have a host of, of, of godly women, if you're a lady in here, who would love to talk to you. We have a host of godly men, if you're a guy in here and you're struggling. Or maybe you're the one being sinned against. You say, I just don't know what that first step is. I'm, I'm terrified of my wife. I'm terrified of my husband. I'm terrified of my boyfriend. I'm terrified of my friend or, or whatever the relationship is but I know they're engaged in this heinous sin. I know this isn't what God desires for them. And I know that as a Christian, they can't continue to walk in this, but I am mortified at the thought of saying something to them. We can walk through that with you. We will love you, we will love them, and we will help you have that conversation. Nobody's looking for sin. Nobody's out checking your phone records. That just sounds incredibly boring. Nobody's reading through your emails. No one has time for that. But would you know that we love you? That God loves you? Your brothers and sisters in this church that love you and that want to help you walk up out of sin because that's God's heart, because that's God's desire for you. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness. God, I thank you that you have not created us to walk in sin. You are not indifferent to our sin. You have given us brothers and sisters who will fight alongside us to put sin to death. They'll be there for us. They won't cast us off. And so, God, I pray, I pray for those who may be sought out in this room to help a brother or sister deal with sin, that you would help them be strong in the word, to recognize their limitations. Father, I pray for the one who is sinning that you would break their heart. God, cause them not to turn with worldly grief, which leads to death, but godly grief and sorrow, which leads to repentance in life. And Father, this morning we want to pray for... I want to pray this morning, Father, for the one in this room who has yet to submit themselves to Jesus because they've been trying to get their life right They've been seeking to understand that this morning you would meet them in this place for salvation as they confess their sins to you and they turn and they seek to follow Christ who is our risen Lord. God, would you lead us in worship as we respond? Would you guide our hearts in your truth? We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.